Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from this week. I'm your host, Chris White. My co-host for this week is fellow Zeal, Randy Coleman. Hey, Chris. How's it going? I'm great. Uh, how's your Friday going, Randy? It is going. Doing all the Zeal things today. Nice. So today we're focusing more on open source, specifically a library called Redux Persist Sensitive Storage, which hit 1.0 recently. Randy, could you give our listeners a quick description of Redux and Redux Persist and tell us what needs Redux Persist Sensitive Storage addresses? Sure, I can do that. Um, Redux is a so-called state management library for React applications. And the basic principle of it is that you have all of your state that you need for your application, or at least most of it, in a single called a state tree. And then you render your React UI as a function of what's in the state tree. And then when you need to make changes, your components in your React application dispatch actions back through the Redux store, and that updates the state tree and then re-renders the UI. So you get this loop going, a one unidirectional loop going. So you get uh, this one-way rendering of all of your components based on one single tree. Exactly. Cool. And then, and then Redux Persist is a library that lets you save some or all of that state tree locally in your browser or in the case of a React Native application to local storage on the phone or the tablet where the application is running. And the, the idea there is sometimes you want to have data persisted on the client so that the application starts up faster or has data when it starts up before you can make any server calls or things like that. So Redux Persist is a great library for that kind of thing. Great. So like if you, for example, on a mobile app, you might like have some local preferences or maybe even like the the data that's needed to render the first screen or so inside of Redux Persist. Exactly. Or even a token or two. Or even a token or two. Nice segue. Excellent segue. So what's Redux Persist sensitive storage? Uh, that is a library that we wrote at Zeal. We pulled it out of a couple of, or a client project and an internal project that both needed the same feature, which is we wanted to be able to store some of the information from the Redux state tree in more secure storage than what you normally get. So on React Native, there's a API provided called async storage, and that stores information local to the application. So it can't really be accessed by other applications, but it's not really secure. And with API tokens... So someone could like plug in their phone and, and pull values out of that if they wanted to, or if their phone got hacked or something like that. Yeah, or they jailbroke an iPhone or something like that. Gotcha. So how does Redux Persist Sensitive Storage fix that? Well, we use a library called React Native Sensitive Info, which these are all very long library names. It's kind of hard to follow. It is. Um, and what that does is gives you access to secure storage on the device. So that's the, the keychain on iOS. And on Android, the default branch stores to shared preferences, but there is a branch there that also stores to the Android key store. And so... With that library, you now have an API to talk to the secure storage areas on the phone. And so what Redux Persist Sensitive Storage is, is a bridge between Redux Persist and React Native Sensitive Info. So basically what we're doing is taking two other people's libraries and gluing them together in a way that works well. Very nice. And so what we do in our applications is we set up Redux Persist twice, and we use another plugin for Redux Persist that lets you apply a filtering. And so what we'll say is, okay, this is the area of the state tree that needs to be secure storage. So that will use the Redux Persist sensitive storage backend. And all the other keys that we want to store use the normal async storage backend. Fortunately, Redux Persist allows for pluggable backends. They, they basically specify an API that you need to conform to. And as long as your storage engine conforms to that API, it will happily store your Redux state tree in that storage. That's cool. 
if I remember correctly, when you're configuring Redux Persist, you just have Redux Persist wrap your whole state, your configure store function, and then you give it like a whitelist of keys that you want to be persisted, right? Right. There's a plugin that gives you that the whitelist part of it, um, which we've added in our configurations normally. Um, what you do is when you're setting up your store, you call, I believe the function is called persist store with your store and then whatever configuration you need, like which storage engine you want to use. And from then on, it works automatically. It, every time your state tree changes, it saves that off to storage. And then when your application starts up, it loads the data from storage and then dispatches an action with that data in it that then gets put into your state tree. And, and so you basically, it, it, pretty much fire and forget at that point. And there's ways you can do it more manually, but essentially it's fire and forget. You set it up when you create your store and then it's just always there and running for you. That's interesting. That that was one part of Redux Persist that that I wasn't that wasn't intuitive to me, but it makes sense now that I've used it, is that it doesn't actually like pre-fill your store with stuff from the storage. It actually initializes the store and then dispatches an action to hydrate is i think the word they like to use it is yeah. like put all your stuff instead of like giving you a box with all your stuff in it from the storage it gives you an empty box and then like sends you all the data in the reduxy way yeah and i think it does that because that loading from storage is an asynchronous operation and they don't want to block your application startup waiting for that to come in and so you let your application start up and then as once it's done loading the data, then it can put it in. That's a pretty JavaScripty thing to do. They don't like to block on anything as much as possible. So Great. lots of async APIs, and this is one of them. That's awesome. And so you found yourself writing the same code a couple of times to take React Native sense of info and like create a function that filters out your Redux persist stuff. And I think you already explained it, but how exactly does it know to like where to put it back in your state tree? Is it is it just another wrapper around Redux Persist, or, or I guess it's a storage engine? As far as I know, Redux Persist manages that for you. It, it basically gives you a JavaScript object to write using its API. So there's API for saving items, retrieving items, retrieving a list of items, and it just does that automatically under the hood. And then with the filtering plugin, it will only save certain keys and not all of them. Yeah, you don't really want your transient UI state being persisted to the device because you don't normally you don't anyway. But any kind of data that you want to save, especially API tokens or username password type stuff, kind of keeping that on the device means that people don't have to log in every time they open the app up, which is a very nice feature for most customers. It, it's it's definitely something that people expect, and it seems like it would take up a lot of storage, a lot of storage that isn't necessarily being productively used to store your whole state tree on the device all the time, right? Exactly. And it slows down saving and loading of that state as well if there's too much stuff in there. Gotcha. And the state's probably stale when you pull it back up it a can, day later, right? It can be, yep. Cool. Cool. Sounds awesome. So uh, when, when did you decide that you were going to try to open source this and like, what was the process for you like? Pretty much the first time I wrote it as a configurable storage engine, I thought, you know what? This is not really tied to any one application. It could be generally useful. I want to open source it. The first time... We wrote it that was on a client project, and you don't just open source code that you're writing for a client without permission. So I talked with the client, and he was gracious enough to let us release it and make it available to other people. Before we had a chance to do that, even we needed we had another internal application where we needed the exact same feature. So we kind of pulled it in there, made sure it worked in another context, which it did. And so then we were able to finally had some time to to pull it out and open source it. 
And I've had it open sourced for a while, but I didn't have time to write the docs for it until recently. So that was the main story about what 1.0 was about was you finally felt comfortable with the documentation enough to to draw a line in the sand. Yeah, that and test coverage um, didn't have a lot of test coverage around it either. So now there's good test coverage, which, of course, caught a couple of minor bugs that I hadn't caught when I first wrote it, as tests do. Uh, that and then the documentation. And then I felt like, okay, now we can open source this and make it available to people. That's awesome. I think that's a great contribution. So uh, speaking of contribution, uh, you know, this is a library that glues two libraries together. Then you got even more meta and you wrote a blog post about finding libraries that glue things together and how you curate that. Can you kind of give a synopsis of what you wrote about? Sure. There's uh, another family of projects that I, I wanted to contribute to. Um, the main one is called ESLint Find Rules, which is a little utility that when you have your own ESLint configuration, it can tell you, here's all the rules that are available in ESLint, and here's the ones you're using, and here's what you, what you haven't specified yet. And it had some issues that I wanted to fix, mainly that it would report deprecated rules as unused. And so I was going to go fix that in that library. And then I realized that there was a whole bunch of other pieces that were needed. Ultimately, I ended up contributing to probably four different libraries to make this work and relying on the contributions of other people as well. So there's work in progress already on things that I needed to get that fixed done. And so there's places where stuff seemed to be blocked or just not being worked on. And so I tried to offer to help and, to, and kind of get things moving. And so I kind of wrote up a blog post with that story and then talked about how much I think there's a lot of value in open source software to fill in the gaps between libraries. Like open source maintainers are busy people and they've got a lot on their plates just keeping their own library running. And so having good interoperability with other libraries, sometimes they just don't have the bandwidth for that. And so as people who use the software, you know, if we see holes or gaps like that, we can come in and we can fill those gaps and make it easier for everybody who comes behind us to try to just make the stuff work together. I think a great example of this is the work that Dan Abramov and everyone else on Create React app are doing. That project is intended to basically be a great out-of-the-box experience for React developers. And it brings in pieces from so many other libraries like Babel and Webpack and Jest and all kinds of libraries. All the libraries that aren't on the React homepage, but if you've been using React for a while, you probably are might be using them already. Exactly. And so to get that great out-of-the-box experience, they would find issues in other projects or issues in the gaps between the projects. And they've been great about filing issues upstream, going and fixing bugs upstream, contributing to the whole ecosystem just to get that great out-of-the-box experience. And I think that's where there's a lot of value in open source. I mean, even something as simple as writing a blog post saying, this is how I made all these pieces work together. I've written a few of those. I've seen a lot by other people. So if you're just looking for a place to get into open source, sure, you can commit to a single project or, you know, update documentation, whatever, but maybe try to find those gaps, especially where you've tripped over things in your work. You can look at, oh, you know what? I tried to use this this piece with that piece over there and I ran into these roadblocks. You can write that up so that other people know what to do. You can try to fix it. You can work with the maintainers of both projects to try to get things working better. All, there's all kinds of ways you contribute there, and I think that's a big deal. And this library that we've been talking about today, um, Redux Persistence at a Storage, is one of those things. It just kind of fills the gap between two different pieces of software. That's awesome. Well, that's great and all, Randy, but wouldn't you rather just write your whole own framework that does everything and not have to collaborate with other people? As soon as I can clone myself and have like 50 copies, that'd be great. That's but, great. Uh, it's really nice to be able to stand on the shoulders of giants, for sure. I was... Uh talking to one of our clients uh, earlier today, uh, an engineer over there about React. He had come from an Angular background. And one of the things that was not immediately 
obvious about React is that it's not the whole framework, right? React is the rendering pipeline for your JavaScript. And so it's kind of on you to build your own framework. Like libraries like Redux are super popular, but that's something that would normally be part of a big framework, like kind of like Ember has its own big data handling library. And uh, that's just not part of React out of the box. So it seems like because there's such a big ecosystem, it's even more important for React to have the ecosystem be friendly to one another. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. A lot of people like that about React. And then there are people who don't like that about React. They want more of the answers out of the box. Personally, I prefer the flexibility and I like being able to kind of structure things well, but I tend to be pretty opinionated about things too. So yeah, it was one of the challenges I ran into when I started learning about React a year ago is that coming from a Rails and Ember background, I was looking for the one way to do things. And uh, I was poorly, poorly disappointed when, when I found that there was many, many ways to do things and many, many pieces of toolkit that you can mix and match with the React ecosystem. Yeah, that's where something like Create React App comes in pretty nice because it does set a lot of the pieces up out of the box. It doesn't give you everything and it doesn't tell you how to manage your state and that kind of stuff, but it does at least glue a lot of the pieces together so you don't have to do that all yourself. So Randy, if you were the kind of person that wanted something like Create React App, but wanted even more opinions about what you should have for like your state tree and other parts of the framework, what, what options are out there and available for you? There's actually quite a few. Probably one of the more popular ones is Max Stoiber's React Boilerplate project, which is a much more configurable version of Create React App. A predecessor, actually, it came first, and it's pretty stellar. There's a couple other ones I'm blanking on the names of right now. But also at Zeo, we've kind of got a React stack that we've kind of settled on, and we've released that as open source as well. It's actually built as a Yeoman generator, and you use that, and it generates your React app inside of a, generally inside of a backend server application, like a Rails or a Phoenix application. It can be used standalone as well, but we kind of assume that it's going to be inside the framework of a, of a backend application. And it gives you, we actually built it as a fork of Create React App, and it adds a few extra pieces that we find useful, like Redux, for example, and a few things like that. I think we bring in Apollo for uh, talking to GraphQL APIs and things like that. So just things that we found that we want on every project, we've kind of built our own version of Create React App as a Yeoman generator that gives us everything that Create React App does, and then adds a few pieces in there. We also add CSS modules and SASs for example, which are not part of the, the core yet in Create React App. So it seems like there's options for people that want nothing and want to build it themselves and, and or people that have already gone through the process of picking everything and they find their own unique blend of React and, and create either a boilerplate or a generator that creates their own ideal environment. Exactly. We started with a boilerplate. It was before we knew about Max's project or possibly before it existed. And we figured out how to glue all the pieces together ourselves and made a boilerplate out of that. And then Create React App came out and we thought we should just use that. And it didn't quite have all the pieces we want wanted, but fortunately it allows you to fork the, the React scripts portion of it, which we did. And it just adds the few things that we need that are, that are different from the base, but we can still take advantage of all the great work they've done on that project. It's a super stellar project. I highly recommend checking it out. That's fantastic. Well, uh, we'll definitely make sure to include uh, links to all the stuff we've talked about in our show notes. I think that this is a good place to wrap up. Sounds good. Thanks, uh, Chris. Any any plugs or anything else you want to mention before we wrap? Check out Zeal. Check out our Interestings newsletter at codingzeal.com slash interestings, or you can follow us on Twitter at CodingZeal. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Randy. All right. Thanks, Chris.